All right, everybody. Am I on? I'm on. Okay. Good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. We are uh, in a series that we've been talking. This is actually week 16, um, and we're all the way to Revelation 6, I think. So uh, we're moving right along. Uh, but this is a series that uh, we've been talking about what's going on in our world, not just at the moment, but what's in the future? What does God promise for the future? And, and so we've been studying uh, the events of our world and we've been understanding that basically the, the world is being prepared for the arrival of the Antichrist from all kinds of different uh, theologies, teachings, um, the, uh, uh, the movement that we're seeing in the woke culture. It's all preparing the world to receive the false doctrine of the Antichrist. And so if you're interested in that and you missed the first, I don't know, 15 weeks of this series, go ahead and binge on that for a while uh, and you'll fall asleep. It's okay. You, you wake up again. Um, but, but now we're, we've moved uh, and we're looking at these seven seals, the, um, the seals that are opening the scroll in heaven. And so let me remind you of our timeline and where we are here. Um, this, um, there's a moment that we talked about last week where each seal is broken and as a result, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are released. And we saw in that that there's some pretty interesting things going on on earth when these things happen. And we've talked in the past about how the next major event on our calendar is the rapture of the church. That, that, that at some point that we don't know, uh, Jesus will come back to the clouds and he'll, he'll call his church home. Shortly thereafter will be the arrival of the Antichrist, and that starts the final seven years of Daniel's prophecy that we've talked about. Each seal begins the tribulation time. We're four seals in, and we're not even yet to the first half of the tribulation. Now, we've been looking at seven seal judgments of Revelation. As I said, the first four brought the four horsemen. We studied that last time. With the first seal broken, the tribulation begins. And we're now in our seven-year window. Now the world has been hit with famine and disease and death as a result of the horsemen. And the Antichrist is going to step into that and bring peace. He's going to be the one with the bow but not the arrow. He's going to be the one that assumes the leadership role that he's going to at least act like he didn't plan to take. But with the fifth seal, the one we're going to start with today, God announces his arrival on the scene we begin to see that Jesus is coming back and all of creation is going to be shaken. But before we get there, I want us to note something that I think is important. The contents of the scroll is not being revealed yet. Okay? As the seals are broken, each seal is opened, things happen on earth, the, the uh, tribulation begins to start moving, but with each seal, we begin to see more and more things happening on earth. But you got to remember that the seven seals are to unlock the big scroll. In other words, what's in the scroll can't be read or can't be manifest until all seven seals have been removed. And the seventh seal is not open until chapter 8. What are these seals represent well the first four seem to represent things that we're familiar with war famine death disease and in a way they kind of show us the character of our sin the results of our sin a dramatic portrayal of the world's self-infliction of our own sins on ourselves first four seals are essentially things that we're familiar with things that in many ways our sins have caused if not manifested they represent the terrible effect of man's way on earth and on his environment. The horsemen have to be given permission. Remember, and this is critical, we're going to talk about this throughout all of Revelation. Okay? On earth, it's going to look like it's out of control chaos. But God's on his throne. And nothing happens without him saying it happens. In other words, we're going to see that throughout Revelation, remember that the first thing John saw when he was taken in his vision to heaven was the throne of God. Why? 
because the rest of the story is only, it's critical to understand from the rest of the story that God is on his throne and he's calling every shot in order. It looks like chaos on earth, but it's actually God manifesting his will, his justice, his wrath on his creation. Now, remember in Revelation 1 through 3, we saw the church, seven letters to seven churches. But what happens in chapter 4, there's this moment where we stop hearing about the people of God, the church of God. We, we, we stop hearing about what's going on in the believer's lives during the seal judgments, during the, uh, the time of the tribulation. So the question that we asked several weeks ago was, where's the church when all this happens? And Paul answered this for us in Thessalonica when he talked to them and wrote the book of Thessalonians. Remember, that church was being slaughtered and persecuted. They wanted to know where those who died had gone. In other words, they said, look, we've been here. We're, we're living the, the, the word. We're carrying it out, but we're getting slaughtered. Where are our loved ones right now? We need to know where they are right now. And Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Most of the saints of the church over the last 2,000 years have died. They said, so where is the church? Well, their spirit is with the Lord. So then they begin to wonder, if Christ came back today, what happens to those that have already died? Are they with him? What happens to those of us who are alive at the time? 1 Thessalonians 4.13 but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, sleep in Scripture was a term attributed only to Christians who died. They weren't dead, they were asleep. Okay? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Okay, in other words, this isn't our opinion. This isn't something we think. This is revealed to us from God himself. You wanted the question answered. Here's what God says is the answer. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In other words, those of you who were martyred, those who you loved, who died, they're going to go first. They're going to meet Jesus in the clouds, and then we're going to join him, and we're going to be with him forever. Encourage one another. Your separation is only temporary. It's only for a time. This passage is the rapture of the church. And I believe that it occurs before the, the beginning of the tribulation. The reason that there's no mention of the church or God's people from Revelation 4 to 19 is because we're in heaven. We've been raptured. We're conspicuously absent. You would think John, who wrote Revelation, who was, remember, John was the disciple of love. If you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he's the one that he wrote about how much he loves God, how much he loves his congregation, how much he loves people. For John to not mention the church if they were present during the tribulation seems to me almost inconsistent with who John is. They're absent. I explained earlier in the series that, that we're in heaven going through the judgment of believers and then the wedding of the Lamb. And while the sealed judgments are being released, we're preparing for a wedding. Now, I think it's important to note that each seal, each trumpet, each bowl judgment will get worse and worse. Much like God revealing his power and his authority, much like he did with each of the plagues in Egypt. Not for the purpose of, okay, well, I'm going to do this because I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do, not that. It's more, I'm going to allow this to happen. Do you believe I'm God yet? Oh, that didn't do it? Oh, okay. Well, then I'm going to do this. Do you believe I'm God yet? 
Are you ready to surrender to me? Each one of these seals, each one of these judgments is God's attempt, God's desire to, to allow people to turn back to him. So that by the end, if you've been through seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath, and you're still stiff-arming God, you've made a conscious decision to do so. You've been given every opportunity, and that's what a just God requires. Now we're four seals in, and it seems pretty bad already. I mean, you think about what the four horses of the apocalypse have done, and you go, wow, that's incredible. We haven't even started yet. Jesus said it'll be worse than anything we've ever experienced, anything we could ever imagine, and John sees what's happening, and he tries to describe it to us. You see, when God reveals the end times to followers, they all shudder. I mean, when you understand who God is, and you know that his truth is true, and you know that everything he says in his word is going to happen, and you read this book, you become fearful for other people. Oh, my Lord. What's going to happen to the people that don't know Jesus? And you shudder. And then the people that don't know Jesus scoff. They read the same words, and they go, that'll never happen. That'll never happen. And we have to move in and help them understand that this isn't some fantasy book. This is a day on the future calendar, just like whatever you have planned for tomorrow. It's going to happen. And millions of people are going to be subject to the wrath of God because they refuse to accept Jesus as their Savior and their substitute. And we're here to sound the alarm. When the scroll was read by Daniel the prophet, he, he saw a scroll and he, he turned pale and hit the deck. He couldn't imagine something so horrible happening. He was told to seal it till the end of times. These seven seals are being opened one by one by one. They're bringing incredible famine and disease and death and the arrival of the Antichrist. And yet the contents of the scroll, what made Daniel pass out, he ha we haven't even got to yet. So you can't read the scroll till you open it. We've got more seals to open. So we're going to talk about seals five through seven today. Let's read about the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, remember he had a whole description of the altar, the souls of those that had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Okay, so before we go too far, who are these people? The church has been raptured. All the believers from the Mount of Olives all the way to current time or whenever the rapture occurs, they're up in heaven. So who are these people? These are people, we're told, who've been martyred for their faith. These are people who came to know Christ after the rapture. It took the rapture to get them to pay attention. I think there's going to be a lot of people, uh, many of our family and friends, who are going to see us disappear and go, oh, I know what that was. And then they're going to believe. People ask me all the time, when's the rapture going to occur? When every single person who would come to Christ short of the rapture has come to Christ. And there's a group of people who need to see the rapture before they're going to believe if they survive it. These people came to know Christ after the rapture of the church and were slain for their faith. These are tribulation martyrs. The word testimony here comes from the Greek martyria. It means witness. These Christians are often killed for their faithful witness of the testimony Christ has given them and their martyrs. I, I want to pause here for a minute and just help you understand something. As believers, we are not called to be biblical experts. We're called to know the word. We're called to interpret it correctly. Those of us who are pastors and elders are, are, are taught to make sure we know the doctrines and those kind of things. And we're all to know that. And we're all to grow in that. And we're to study the scriptures. Jesus didn't say, 
Go be a theologian. He said, go be a witness, teaching them what you've seen, okay? If there was a wreck out here on the road and we were in here, none of us could be witnesses because we didn't see anything, right? You can't witness what you haven't experienced. Our job to reach these people who are going to be going through the tribulation is not to convince them that the Bible's real. It's not to convince them that God is who he says he is. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to be a witness to what's happened to us. This is who I was. This is what happened when I met Jesus. And this is the person I've become since then. We are to testify, to witness to the incredible things God has done in our lives. That's what draws people to be open to the Holy Spirit. It happened to me. I saw somebody once, I was the biggest skeptic on the planet. My sister said I was farther from God than any person she'd ever met. She prayed for me for 18 years that I would wake up. But I saw somebody and they had peace. And I needed that peace. I didn't know where it came from, but I wanted to be like that. And I asked her about it and she didn't tell me, well, let me explain it to you. See, there's a God and then there's this thing called this and this and there's this many books in the Bible and you have to read them one, two, and this is how it goes and there's themes that run through the Bible and, and here's the 18 major criteria for Christian faith and here's the doctrines and theology. She didn't do that. She said, I was just like you. I know what it's like to be up at night worrying all the time. I know what it's like to be anxious all the time. I was that person. I, I was the, the worry. I worried for people that didn't worry because they weren't worrying. And then one day I met Jesus. And I got this peace. And it wasn't something I did. It was something he did. He, he just gave me a sense of peace. You see, once I gave up trying to be God and I let him be God, I found peace. So what you're seeing is not me. What you're seeing is Jesus in me. That's witnessing. Okay, we are to be witnesses to what God has done in our lives. It's not hard to go tell your story to somebody. A lot of people go, well, I can't talk to anybody about Christ because I don't know about the dinosaurs. I'm not real sure exactly how all that played out in creation. And they're going to ask me questions I don't know the answers to. That's not your job. Our job is to witness what Christ has done in our life to an unbelieving world because that's what changes them. And that's what gives the Holy Spirit a foothold in their lives. They're willing to listen. I talk about it all the time that I believe that almost every person who comes to Christ, mess, messenger, message. They know the message or maybe they're hearing it for the first time. This is what Jesus claims. And then what happens is something happens in their lives and they realize they need help. That's the mess. And then God sends somebody who's the messenger. And those three things come together and the Holy Spirit begins to work in their heart. We don't save a single person, the Holy Spirit does. And so if a church tells you we've saved it, no, you haven't. You witnessed to people and the Holy Spirit convicted them of their sin, transformed them, gave them the faith to believe and completely changed their lives. These people have become martyrs for their witness. You see, the fifth seal has a very narrow focus. All the other apocalypse, they've occurred on the entire earth, but this is looking at a group of very specific people who are willing to die for the truth of Jesus Christ after the rapture. Jesus had left no doubt that the church would be hated, persecuted, and that members would be martyred. And these are the people where that's happened. Matthew wrote, you will be, or Jesus said, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. John remembered Jesus' words as well. A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. These are the souls of the martyrs. Now in the Old Testament, most of the blood was poured out at the bottom or base of the altar. The life soul of the animal or humans was said to be in the blood. Paul used the idea of offering to describe persecution as his impending martyrdom. Both were said to be like a drink offering. In that sense, Revelation sees Christians who have poured out their blood as a drink offering, as an offer to God, and they're at the altar, under the altar, and John is seeing them and describing them with the fifth seal. 
Revelation is describing in very graphic and meaningful way that the new faithful had to pay a very high price. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Did you catch that? There's a designated number of martyrs. People who came to Christ after the rapture and then were martyred for God. God says, we're not, we're not there yet. You're crying out for justice, but you've got to wait a little longer, you see, because there are more people who have to die like you died. When they all die, then I will avenge their blood. Wait a little longer. Note how every moment, everything is under the direct hand of God. This is not a world spiraling out of control from one disaster to another. It's calculated, it's restrained, it's appropriate, it's perfect justice poured out by a perfect God on an unwilling world. God says, look, I got other martyrs on earth that remain there for my purposes. They've not yet been beheaded. Got to wait for that. Rest a little longer until your number is complete. I think we have to pause here and really soak in what's happening. You see, God will allow anything, anything to happen on earth if it brings about an eternal consequence that is his will. Let me repeat that. God will allow anything to happen on earth, in your life, in my life, in human history, if it brings about the best eternal consequences. He doesn't say there's people that need to be martyred and I gotta go save them first so they don't get martyred. He didn't say that. Like, likely these believers destined to martyrdom, I know they're crying out, God save us. We don't wanna be beheaded, protect us. God hears those voices. They're crying out, just like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass for me. If it's your will, let this cup pass. There are people after the rapture who believe in Christ who are going to be martyred, and I know they're going to call out to God, please, some other way. He was likely flooded with people at that moment praying to be spared their beheading. And if God was only focused on giving us a wrinkle-free, risk-free, worry-free life on earth, he'd save us from anything we don't like or want. But unlike most of us, God's perspective is first and foremost what happens to people eternally, not on earth. You've got to let that soak in. You see, God realizes, unlike many of us, that the real show is not here. That anything can be allowed here if it brings about eternity for somebody else or for some people. He's more concerned about saving you eternally than he is about making your life on earth wrinkle-free. You see, we often have made God into this genie. God, don't make me go through anything terrible. Don't make me go through any suffering. Don't make me go through any problems. Well, the truth is many of us only turn to God in those moments. And often our suffering, our struggle is what leads other people to Christ. They see us handling terrible situations more normally, more in an unusual way. And they come to us like I did to the lady that had peace and they say, why are you not freaking out? Well, let me tell you my story. You see, and it's in that story that eternity gets changed, that people reach eternity. So God will allow anything to happen to any of his children during this fleeting moment on earth if it changes eternity for us or for somebody else. And God has required during these end times a certain number of martyrs to be slain. Somehow their death by execution will bring others into the eternal kingdom. 
If a believer can be sacrificed on earth and by doing so, someone else could be saved for all of eternity in God's economy, that's a win for everybody. So you may ask yourself, why did that person who was following Christ, who was here every week, who was your best friend, why did he die, God? Because somehow, some way, his death brings somebody else into eternity. And eternity is what matters, not our time here on earth. So this seal judgment is kind of a weird one. Each judgment so far has been God pouring out his wrath on those who have aligned himself with his enemies. But this seal seems to impact believers. This is about the followers of Christ being executed and martyred. How does allowing more martyrs serve as a judgment against non-believers? If each seal is a judgment for those who don't believe, how does martyring more Christians do that? I'm so glad you asked that. Well, the death of martyrs brings judgment in two ways. First of all, whether anybody on earth wants to admit it or not, the presence of believers on earth right now protects them from the full wrath of Satan. The presence of the Holy Spirit on earth is restraining the unrestrained Satan. Okay? So by having believers on earth, those who are not believers are living a more protected life than they would if we weren't here. We're going to see that at the rapture. All of a sudden, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the restraining presence is gone. The Antichrist can have his way. You see, most people who don't follow Jesus think they want us gone, but they really don't. The removal of God's people, salt and light in the world, will allow darkness to stay dark and will allow corruption to overrun the earth. The blind will lead the blind. In a world with a limited number of believers, each one being martyred gives Satan just a little bit extra foothold. Second, God is standing in judgment over non-believers who reject him. He's already counted up their individual sins that they wouldn't let Jesus pay for. And as enemies of God, they're now murdering his people. They're adding more judgment on themselves. They'll receive a greater measure of God's wrath for what they've done to the martyrs. And third, God doesn't tell them that the judgment for what happened to them isn't going to happen. He tells them it just has to be delayed a little while. Then he'll pour his wrath out on them as well. Now something else of interest here. These souls have been martyred and their souls are with God at the throne of heaven. Their blood and their life have been poured out as drink offerings, yet they still seem to care about getting justice for what happened to them. They aren't joyful and bliss. They're crying out to God, how long do we have to wait for justice? Some disagree, but I believe this shows us that heavenly souls are not oblivious to what happens on earth. Even in heaven, things will not settle until God has brought justice both to heaven and earth, when everything has been resolved. The actions of God during end times bring about his order, his will, his justice, and his sovereignty throughout all creation for all of eternity. The fifth seal tells us that the church this persecution and martyrdom is not random or meaningless. It's a sweet sacrifice to God who knows precisely what the church is suffering and what the church is enduring. In other words, God is answering the prayer that believers have prayed since the day Jesus prayed it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's happening in Revelation. God is bringing his will to a world that has rejected him. Revelation is what happens when God's kingdom comes and finally his will is done on earth as it's always been in heaven. How long? Rest a bit longer. More of your brothers and sisters must die first. They will join you and then it's time for the sixth seal. Servants throughout the ages have asked the same question. David, for instance, my soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? 
Habakkuk said, how long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you don't listen. We could imagine how the church in John's day would have related this question of how long. Jerusalem had fallen in 70 A.D. This book was likely written around 96 A.D. 26 years ago, the temple fell. The early expectation of Christ's return hasn't materialized. The church is suffering persecution both from the Jews and the Romans. Some Christians have been martyred and banished and had their property confiscated. I know throughout history they were asking, how long? People who have been raped, people who've been assaulted, people who've seen things happen to other people. How long, God, before your justice? I can just reassure you that it's coming. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll take care of it. But even the person that hurt you, Jesus says, I want to give every opportunity for them to be saved for all of eternity. And so however long it takes for them to declare in a very clear way their choice, that's how long it's going to take. Revelation 6.12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black like sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. That's a big deal. With the sixth seal, we have absolute catastrophe on earth. There can be no doubt. Something cataclysmic is happening. The first five seals were all about God bringing his judgment on the wrath of man, his enemies, and to do so required the sacrifice of believers. But this seal, this seal brings a change of natural order. He rearranges the earth and the heavens. We see the following signs and wonders. A great earthquake. The sun becoming black like sackcloth. Moon becoming like blood. Stars falling on earth. Heaven departing as the scroll seems to be rolling up together. Every mountain and island moved. Now think about this. This isn't figurative. This is real. Where'd Mount Everest go? Oh, it's over there. Wow. What happened to this ocean? Well, now it's the Sahara, the ocean's over there. With the sixth seal, there's this awesome cosmic experience. I don't mean awesome like cool, I mean awesome like awestruck. And John is trying to describe it to us. Jesus had already told us what this would be like. Immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened, said Jesus. And the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. It's Matthew 24. Throughout Scripture, earthquakes often represented divine visitation. When God stepped into earth, the earth shook. We saw it at Mount Sinai. The whole mountain trembled violently, the Scriptures say. Isaiah prophesied of a time when the Lord would shake the earth. In Haggai, the Lord says, In a little while there I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. When Jesus was crucified, a great earthquake rearranged the temple and tore the curtain. Earthquakes often meant God is arriving, God is coming, here he is. That's what a cataclysmic earthquake reveals. God stepping into his creation and his creation crumbling under his power and authority. First he sent four horses, now he's coming directly. Throughout scripture, celestial disturbances are often connected with the coming of the Messiah or the coming of God. We see it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah, and Jesus himself all describe these things. Joel 20, 30, And I will show wonders in heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Now some will tell you today that we're already in the tribulation. That the great and terrible day of the Lord is now. Let me just dump some water on that before it spreads. In the great tribulation, several things are promised. The Antichrist will be revealed. We've yet to see him. 
Famine will hit the entire earth, not just part of the earth. That's the black horse. We haven't seen that. War will come upon the entire earth, not just part of the earth. That's the red horse. We haven't seen that either. The entire animal kingdom will rise against humanity. One-fourth of the earth will be killed. In 2030, that'll be 2.13 billion dead people. Haven't seen that. The sun will turn black, meaning the entire earth will go dark, not just in some parts, everywhere. Stars will fall from the sky, from the heavens to earth. We're yet to see those things. We are not in the tribulation period. We're living in luxury compared to what's going to happen in the tribulation period. Right now, we're living in a period that's called grace. Why is it called grace? Because we have time to turn back to God before before the tribulation hits. Verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Isn't this amazing? I mean, the people that reject the rock of ages are now praying to the rocks. You would think they'd be praying to God. God, help us in this earthquake. We realize this is you. You're all powerful. I've been denying you. I've been stiff arming you. I've been pushing you away. But this, everything is happening. God, I I see it. This is you. That's not what they're doing. They're praying to the forces of nature to kill them. During the sixth seal, people in their darkest moments are going to call out to creation to save themselves. A creation that literally is crumbling under the power of the Almighty God. Tammy and I have been watching a show called Alone. I don't know if you've seen this show or not. It's really kind of funny. They drop people off among bears, usually, in the woods. They give them very little, and they say, survive and film yourself. It's stunning to watch. These are survivalists. Almost every one of them worships nature. They pray to the trees. They pray to the universe. They pray to Mother Nature. They pray to creation. One lady even said, I know that if I treat this dead animal well when I prepare it to eat, that creation will allow other animals to die for me and bring them to me. Craziness. Paul told the Romans that this would become rampant, that people would worship the creation instead of the creator. It's just hard to watch and wonder how God must feel. I see these people waking up, hugging trees, kissing leaves, falling on their knees at a sunset. And I'm like, wow, you totally missed it. Well, Jesus is now entering his creation and the whole of creation is going to be impacted. People falsely convince themselves when God comes back, I'm going to make a deal with him. I'm going to talk to him. He's going to grade me on it. See, God and I are tight. He's my buddy. And I haven't done things right, but I'm better than other people. So when he comes back, we're going to have a discussion. No, you're not. Revelation 6 shows us that when God arrives to judge, even sinners, what they dread most is not death. They're begging to die. It's the revealed presence of God they don't want to stand under. You see, the wrath of God is not spiteful or personal vindictiveness. It's measured. It's God's holy response to unrepentant sin that has caused misery and suffering to humans that they brought among themselves. But just because it's not spiteful doesn't mean it's bearable. In fact, they make a statement and a very interesting penetrating question that we need to open. Calling to the mountains and rocks... Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne. That's the Father. From the wrath of the Lamb, the Son. You see, we recognize where this is coming from. This isn't a random event. This is like something we've never seen before. Only God could do this. So protect us, save us, kill us from the face of him who's on the throne.
the great day of, note the plural, their wrath has come. The wrath of the lamb sounds like an oxymoron. We usually associate lambs with meekness and humility. They're tender, they're mild little creatures. Other animals are associated with wrath and considered ferocious. We would think the lion from the tribe of Judah would be a more fitting image to depict Christ at this point. Lions are fierce. No one would dare to care to meet a lion unless they're armed with a weapon. One would not, however, take a weapon to protect yourself from a lamb. And we may tend to downplay the wrath of God. The Bible doesn't let us forget it. Revelation makes clear that although Christ defers punishment, there comes a time when his patience is exhausted. He waits long, but when his righteous anger is aroused, he's going to break forth in the full fury of his wrath. The Bible is clear that when man's measure of iniquity is full, he'll be ripe for judgment, sin will have run its course, and God will come to judge. The enemies of God have attempted their worst. They've aligned united forces against him and his people, and suddenly, like a thief in the night, his anger will break forth like lightning. His indignation will burn like fire. The great day of vengeance will come. The day of judgment will be upon those who have stubbornly refused to bow their knee to Christ or to confess him as Lord. This is the only time in Scripture that I could find where the wrath of the Lamb is used in Scripture. Wrath of God often, wrath of Lamb just here. I think we have to notice the contrast in Christ. Think about the wrath of the lamb on the day of judgment and the meekness of the lamb on the day of crucifixion. At Calvary, Jesus Christ, the lamb, offered no resistance. He was abused, but he made no complaint. He bore it in patience and majestic silence, and he willfully laid down on the cross like a sacrificial lamb. The same sacrificial lamb could have stepped down from the cross at any time. He could have consumed his enemies with a single word. The same angels who sing praise to him who is worthy in Revelation 5 were at his call to come to his aid at the crucifixion if he'd have called them. But in spite of all the torment and all the anguish, he stayed on the cross and he died. Enemy certainly thought this was triumphant. The hour of darkness, Satan's holding carnival as the Son of God dies on the cross. He thought he was in control. He thought he finally had power. Just think about what Satan was thinking when Jesus breathed his last. But he didn't stay in the tomb. Death couldn't hold him. He's risen and now he sits at the throne in heaven. That's the news the devil doesn't want anybody to know. All throughout history, he's been trying to convince the world that he's the victor instead of Christ. So convincing has his argument been that followers of Christ have been martyred throughout history. How often the martyr's blood has been made to flow. No wonder they cried out like they did in verse 10. The master's been replying, wait. Wait until your fellow servants follow you into martyrdom. Today, we're seeing inroads into Muslim, Hindu, Islamic strongholds because of martyrs. People are coming to Christ for eternity because martyrs, they're pried open by the blood of the martyrs. Ordinary people willing to die for Jesus for eternal purposes. At the cross, Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. Now he's being revealed as the lamb that was slain the Lamb who could open the seals, the Lamb who had received from the Father all authority in heaven and earth, the Lamb who knew the price for our salvation and paid it himself, the Lamb who comes for those who believed and those who did not. So the people during this seal ask a very penetrating question. Instead of bowing down in worship, they conceal themselves in caves and they cry out the obvious, the great day of the wrath has come who can stand who can stand if you can answer this question then you won't suffer under the wrath of God
This is actually a quote from Malachi. Malachi 3.2, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. Who can stand? Well, Jesus did. He took the full wrath of God for our sins on the cross. He stood in our place. He paid the full price. He felt the weight of the wrath. It was intense. Every judgment, every punishment for every sin that's ever happened or going to happen, he took it all and he stood in it. He took the wrath that every man on earth deserved. Jesus is God and God himself can stand the wrath. That's who it is. In fact, even Jesus talked about this. Matthew 24. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus said no one could be saved unless the days were cut short. So obviously there are two more groups to consider. Those who believe in Jesus, the elect, they can stand, but not of themselves, only because of their faith in Jesus. You see, it's our faith in Jesus that allows us to stand or to allow Jesus to be our substitute when the wrath of God comes for our sins. So who are these elect who survived because the days cut short? They're believers who came to be known Christ during the tribulation, those not yet martyred. Their answer is a simple one. Who can stand? The answer is Christ alone. He's the only one that can stand the wrath of God for your sins. That's why he is the only way. Only Christ can take the full force of the righteousness and wrath of God for the sins of the world. No human can do it. No believer can do it. No one can do it. That's why he's called the savior of the, don't miss it, world. The savior, singular, world, all of it. As believers in Christ, we don't stand a chance against the wrath of God for our sins on our own. But we do stand under Christ and his righteousness. And under the protective hand of God and the promise of our protection when the day of judgment comes. Again, not a single thing we did. Christ did it all for us. In light of all the devastation let loose in the judgments, one might conclude that no one could possibly stand. But we know there are two groups, the redeemed and the not redeemed. The only reason we're going to survive the wrath of God is because Jesus took it for us. That is so critical to understand. Substitutionary death for us. Revelation 7.1, after this I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Think about this for a minute. There's an enormous earthquake like has never been seen before, ever. The world is rearranged. Mountains have moved. Oceans have changed. Land has moved. And now, after this incredible cataclysmic fall on us, kill us, do something, there's this eerie, total, complete calm. Not a breath of air. Nothing moving. An eerie time on earth. Next week, we're going to learn what happens when the seventh seal is broken. And we see that the dead calm on earth also happens in heaven. The seventh seal is the last seal. The scroll the prophet Daniel read, the scroll that made him pale and pass out, the scroll where Daniel was told to seal until the end. Now the end has come. It's time to unveil what's in the scroll. Heaven and earth are going to stand in awe. God has arrived back into his creation to judge the world, and there's a dead calm. And it's all because of what's about to be unleashed. Let's pray. God, I thank you that there's nothing in our future that we're not told that we need to know. 
We read the scriptures and we see our future. We read the scriptures and we see the future of people who don't believe in you. God, it has to move our hearts to reaching people with our witness. Help us get over this idea that we have to be scholars and that people come to Christ because of some theological argument. People come to Christ because they're desperate, the Holy Spirit is moving them, and they're ready to respond to the truth. So God, send us out as witnesses. Send us out with our story ready. Send us out looking for people who need to find out the reason why we have the hope that we have because the time is drawing near. So God, thank you for showing us the future. Thank you for letting us know what's on the horizon because if anything, it should prompt us to evangelism. We have no purpose here on earth except to share the gospel. We have no purpose here on earth except to be used by you to bring about eternal consequences in the lives of other people. You'll do anything, go anywhere to reach anybody for you. So God, send the Holy Spirit out ahead of us. Let us walk in step with you. When he prepares their heart, when he's moving them, when he's prompting them, send us God as the messenger. The Lord says, who will go? Here I am, Lord, send me. There's not a better time on earth to be a witness to your testimony. So God, you said that the field is full, but the workers are few. Pray that's not true with this church. Send us out. Let us be witnesses for you. Particularly as we see the day draw near. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Anne, come on up. Yep. <laughs> I wish I could sing. Um, if you would like to rewatch the sermons or get some notes, you can go on to our website or you can go to YouTube, Frank Bible Truth, and be able to print out the sermon notes, rewatch anything. If you go on to our uh, Remnant Church website, you can also.